My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church and the occasional drummer when they're really hard up and looking for somebody. But it, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I play in a rock band. We're going to be at the dugout on January 8th as a fundraiser and stuff. So I'm starting to get my chops back a little bit, but uh, they're a little bit rusty. And I'm, I'm really wondering, when I, when I play in this band, I wear a do-rag because I got the frizziest hair in the world. And when I put on these headphones and take them off, I look like Bozo the Clown. So I wear a do-rag, but I thought I can't preach in a do-rag. So do I look like Bozo the Clown? A little bit? He's saying, yeah, yeah, you do look. Am I, am I, I'm having a pair of that hair day, all right? Give me a break. So anyways... I want to welcome you if you're visiting for the first time, especially if you're from Australia, like my niece over here and her kids. Good to see you guys. An Aussie down under. Charlie's here. And oh, it's just great to have you guys here. Well, I hope that you had a really good Christmas and are heading into a good new year and closing up the year in, in a good fashion. Uh, this time of year, for better or for worse, it tends to be the time where people... Um, as a culture, we tend to think more about Jesus during Christmas time than other times. That actually is, I think, rather sad. Uh, if you understand who he is, um, it ought to be something that is in the forefront of our attention every day. But it is the case. As a culture, people think, oh yeah, baby Jesus wasn't that nice. But it makes for a perfect opportunity for us, especially closing out this year, to ask the question, who, who is, who was and who is Jesus Christ? I think it is the single most important question a person can ask. Jesus himself asked his disciples at one point, who do you think that I am? What is your opinion of Jesus Christ? And it just so happens that the passage that we're on in the book of Luke is about that issue. Now, if you're visiting here or are kind of new to the church, uh, here's, what, here's what we do. We take breaks once in a while, do a series like Compassion by Command and then other things like that. And then we come back to the Bible and just kind of preach through the Bible. Whatever comes up next, that's what I preach on. And so for the last seven years, we've been in the book of Luke. <laughs> We're actually going to be picking up speed because I want to, I really want to try to get, get so I'm at the, 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 the Easter story on Easter. <laughs> so... So I'm, I'm, we're, 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 I'm going to try to pick up the pace a little bit here. Though, and I, I mean this Easter, this coming Easter, not next Easter. So we'll see how that works. I, I don't know. But this passage is about the identity of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I want to entitle this message somewhat provocatively, Jesus, Avatar, or God? Avatar or God? And if you don't know what an avatar is, you'll find out shortly. But I'll just tell you, it's, it, it's more than just the name of a recent movie that came out. And this, I think, is a good way today of, of kind of pinpointing the question that we're dealing with in this passage. Jesus, as you may recall, if you were here last time we taught out of the book of Luke, he, he just got through cleansing the temple, ticked off all the Jewish authorities, and now he's having these debates, these dialogues with the, these folks. And so this topic comes up, starting with verse 41. Then Jesus said to, to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Hmm, Jesus says, in between the texts. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? How can he be the son of David, but also the one that David calls Lord? Pray with me here just for a moment. Father, we are just so aware that 
human words and human arguments can be used by you, but in and of themselves, they, they just aren't enough to change minds and to change hearts. So Holy Spirit, we call on you, we rely on you, and we ask that you come here and empower these words and ride them into our ears and our hearts and our minds to build your kingdom in us. And for everyone in this auditorium and those who are going to be listening through podcasts or television or some other way, Lord, I just pray that you would be active in their life. And if they have views of Jesus that are confused, would you use this to be a clarifying moment? And for others who have been Jesus followers for some time, would you use this to be an empowering, equipping moment? So we can help others come to an understanding of who Jesus is. Have your way in this place, in these words. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I'm doing this because after the last service, a lady came up and said, you're driving me crazy with those smudgy glasses. And I forgot to clean them, so I I don't want to drive anyone crazy here. So just pause for a moment, okay? I don't notice them. My wife's the same way. She's always like, how do you even see out of those things? I, I don't notice. I do notice that after I clean them, though, I can see a lot clearer. It's like, oh, wow, that's what the world looks like. So it's a little better. They're still kind of smudgy, aren't they? Oh, who cares? So the question here is this. <clears throat> the Messiah is the son of David, which simply means a descendant of David, one who's in the lineage of David, a human being who would be in the lineage of David, and yet David calls him Lord. How is that possible? That's what Jesus is asking here. How is that possible? It's especially interesting in a patriarchal culture where the the man, the the father, has more esteem than anybody else. The father is esteemed over the son. And so Jesus is saying, how can the Messiah be David's son and yet, and, and yet uh, greater than, than, than the father. How can the, f- the son be greater than the father? Especially, especially if that father is King David. Because all the folks he's talking to would assume that David is one of the greatest people that ever lived. His sins notwithstanding. We're talking about King David. So how can the son, a descendant of King David, be greater than King David? In fact, how can the son be so much greater than King David that King David himself calls him Lord? And Lord, Adonai, is one of the main words that Jews in the first century used to, uh, to refer to Yahweh, the Creator, Lord God Almighty. How is the Messiah not just a descendant of David, but the Lord God Almighty? Now, Jesus here doesn't answer this question, as he so often does in the Gospels. He just sort of messes with people's minds. He gives even these questions to think about. But what he's doing is laying the seeds for a future revelation. In the near future, it will be revealed. It is, I think, the most spectacular revelation, most surprising, most shocking revelation, and most important revelation in the entire Bible, in all of history, I believe. And that is the the Messiah would not just be a great human being, but the Messiah was going to be the embodiment of the Lord himself here on earth. Once we see who Jesus is, we can look back at the Old Testament and see prophecies of this happening long before Jesus ever came. But it's not what the Jews of the time were expecting. They didn't know that Yahweh himself was going to come to earth, and that's who Jesus presents himself as being. As a full human being, he's a descendant of David, but as the creator of David, he is David's Lord. That's how the Messiah is both the son of David and the Lord of David. It's what we in Christian circles call the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine. And he's the only one who is. God coming to earth 
in order to redeem us back to himself. This is, I think, always the central teaching of, of the kingdom. But it's especially important today that we who are followers of Jesus really know why we view him the way we view him. Because we live in a time when there are uh, increasing, increasing plurality of views of him. A lot of different opinions about who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. And so this is going to be one of those teaching messages. Sometimes I preach and other times I just teach. And when I teach, I, I encourage people to take notes. Either that or I'll develop a really good memory all of a sudden so you remember all the verses I'm going to be giving you because I'm going to give you a lot of verses. And this is just so, so vitally important. It's particularly important today because of the diversity of views that are out there. We had just uh, not too long ago some folks, two folks coming to our door. I'm sure you have these folks coming to your door too. But you might be one of the ones who go to the doors. Uh, and they're from the Watchtower and Track Society. And God bless them, wonderful people, sharing the truth as they understand it. Uh, the, the troubling part is that their view of Jesus is that he's an archangel. He's not himself God, he's an archangel. And um, they, they, they like to share that with people. And I really enjoy it when they come because I like to share my view too. <laughs> they never come back. I don't know why. I always feel slighted. And then, of course, in, in, in America, there's, there's uh, an, an increasing, uh, growing, very, very fast-growing Muslim population. And, and the Muslims view Jesus as a great prophet. In fact, in the Quran, it pronounces a, 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 a curse, a blasphemy, on any person who thinks that Jesus is divine, the Son of God, in any way uh, related to, uh, directly uh, represents God himself. And, and that, that view is becoming increasingly known. But the most influential view, I think, that is contrary to the, the biblical view of who Jesus is, uh, really comes from a different source altogether. In the last two decades in particular, uh, there has been what some have called the New Age movement. It's sort of the, the influence of Eastern philosophy and Eastern spirituality on the West. And there are some, I th- some very important things, I think, about health and whatnot that we need to learn from the East. It's not like the West has a corner on all truth. But this mindset has, has been significantly influencing, influencing the way people think about Christ and the way they think about a lot of different religious themes. There was a poll that was uh, taken... A, a real big research thing that, that was just published a couple weeks ago, funded by the Pew Foundation. And it was on the religious beliefs and practices of Americans. And what they found is that the majority of Americans view religious beliefs and practices sort of like a smorgasbord. And, and they pick and choose whatever they like. And it doesn't have to be coherent or anything like that. It's just, I like this part and I like this. And so you, you take a little from every, every, all these different religions and traditions and you kind of put them together. And even a good percentage of those who identify themselves as Christians do that. And there's nothing wrong with learning from other religions at all. I'm all for that. It's just that when it comes to our view of Jesus, it can raise some real significant issues. Uh, There's increasingly uh, in this culture, uh, as a result of this New Age movement, uh, the view that God is sort of this energy that permeates creation, if not identified with creation, all together, and, and that everybody has their own sort of divinity, and everyone has to kind of find their own way, and there is no absolute truth. Everyone has to kind of define truth for themselves. This is the sort of spirituality that's, that's heavily promoted by Oprah Winfrey, for example. You can see it really clearly illustrated in a book by Eckhart Tolle, uh, The New Earth. He claims that he doesn't even have any beliefs. He's so open-minded, and yet every page is filled with his telling us that he believes that. Uh, it's it was a frustrating book to read, but that, yeah, that's the idea, is that there's no definitives, and so everyone sort of has to find their own way, and, 
Uh, all truth is, is, is the same. In fact, it becomes very intolerant. You get heard as being intolerant if you say that there is any sort of absolute truth. Which is kind of interesting because like, if you're in the middle of a highway and there's a car coming at you and you think it's really just made of foam, the car's not going to adopt to your belief system. I mean, in the normal world, we understand that truth is, there's a reality out there. And it's not intolerant to say, here's what I think reality is. Let's suppose you and I are, are in the middle of a highway some evening and, and talking. Why we're in the middle of the highway talking, I don't know. But we, we're in the middle of this highway, very dark, and, and, we're in, and we're talking, having a nice discussion. We look up and we see there's two headlights coming towards us. But we can't see anything more than the headlights. And I say, I think we better leave the highway because I think there's a truck coming. And you say, uh, no, no, I, it's not a truck. It is uh, two motorcycles. So if we just stay put in the middle of the road, they'll go on both sides of us. Now, you may be right, and I may be wrong, or I may be right, and you may be wrong, and we're going to find out in about eight seconds. But what would make any sense is to say, ah, it's a truck for me and motorcycles for you. <laughs> no, it's either a truck or it's motorcycles or something altogether different, but it is one thing. But see, in, the, in this mindset, when it comes to religious beliefs, it's, it's just sort of you know, this amorphic sort of thing. And Jesus gets looped into all of that. In this worldview, it's very okay to see Jesus, in fact, most see Jesus as great. He is an enlightened human being. He is a, an ascended master, some say. He is uh, here to help us discover our, our own divinity or, or something of the sort. He's farther along than the rest of us. But it's not to say that he's the only one who is that. He's right up there with Buddha and Confucius and Lao Tzu and all the other great religious leaders. And, and why rule out any of them? Uh, you know, that's, that's narrow, that's intolerant. Uh, we have to see Jesus as, as one of the great ones, but not the only one. He's not in a class all by himself. He is, to a large degree, in this worldview, something of an avatar. Which brings me to the movie Avatar. Some of you have seen that movie, right? It, I, I saw it the other night. And it is, I will tell you, uh, in the 3D version, it, it was the coolest cinematic experience I've ever had in my life. Like, whoa, you're ducking from things. Like, you know, it, it, it's just cool. It's just for that alone, it's a cool movie. And the, the, the storyline is, is pretty cool, too. I, I don't like all the violence, even when it's animated, but still. Uh, it, it was a cool storyline, kind of an allegory on uh, the European conquest of America and how Europeans have tended not to understand or appreciate indigenous people. And there's been a long uh, history of Europeans uh, thinking that people who are very different from the, their, themselves are inferior. And um, it also took some stabs at recent politics, which makes the whole thing kind of entertaining and informative. Nonetheless, the movie was steeped in this sort of spirituality, which a lot of Hollywood movies are now. Uh, in this movie, God is Iwa, who is a sort of female divine intelligence that permeates creation. And some people have the ability to tap into that, that, uh, that, that, that intelligence that permeates the, the, this planet and uh, are empowered thereby. Very much like Star Wars with the Force be with you. I am your father, Luke. You know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, come to the dark side of the Force. An avatar, an avatar is a Hindu concept. An avatar is a manifestation of God in Eastern spirituality. And it's usually applied to one who is a highly enlightened human being. Like Jesus or Buddha or Gandhi or, or something of the sort. One who maybe even you would say manifests God. 
uh, but is not themselves God in any kind of unique way. And so the hero of Avatar, the movie, is this guy named Jake, and, and a human being who then comes to defend the indigenous people in this purple population and, and um, uh, ends up becoming one of them, and, and he's their new leader. And I maybe just spoiled the show for you, I'm really sorry, but they named it Avatar, and I had to explain it, so there you go. So in this new spirituality, Jesus is something of an Avatar. But he's not the Lord God Almighty. And this view is very influential, which is why I believe that if there's any part of the Bible you need to be booked up on if you're a follower of Jesus, it's on this topic. It doesn't get any more important than this. It doesn't get any more foundational than this. Why think Jesus is something other than that? And so in the passage we looked at this morning, Jesus is there in the temple and he's really, you know, just just getting at this point. Uh, You know, folks, have you ever thought about this? How is it that the Messiah is the son of David, therefore he's fully human, and yet David calls him Lord? Hmm, Isn't that something interesting to think about? We see the same point made in much the same way, but a little clearer in the last book of the Bible. Revelations 22, listen to this. Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what they have done. Pause for a moment. Notice, Jesus here is the judge of all humanity. And this is written in a Jewish context in the first century, and every Jew in the first century knows what all of us should know, and that is that there's only one who is able to judge humanity, and that's the creator of humanity. And yet Jesus here applies this to himself. He's the judge of humanity. He's not one of the human beings that are judged. And then he says this, look at this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony. Stop for a second. Notice Jesus sends the angels. He's not one of the angels. In fact, notice that Jesus owns the angel. He says, I'm sending my angel because he's the creator of the angel. Jesus ain't no angel. And then he goes on, he says, I've sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, he's making a claim to deity. Because throughout the Bible, there's only one being who says, I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, and that is the Creator, the Lord God Almighty. For example, we find in Isaiah 44, the Lord says this. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. Note the singular, there's only one. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And he's saying this to his people because at this point in history, the Jewish people are being inclined to start worshiping things in nature and idols and things of that sort. And so the Lord is reminding them, look, there's only one of me, and I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Don't worship anything outside of me. The one who says, I am the first, I am the last, is the only one who never began to exist, never ends in existence. Go back as far as you want, he's there. Go, back, go, go forward as far as you want, and he's there. He's the one eternal, uncreated God. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And yet... Here, Jesus, the son of David, says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Because he is the Almighty now coming down and being embodied in human form. Which is why, which is why he can say, I am the root and the offspring of David in this passage. It's the same point he's making in the temple. He's the offspring of David as a full human being. He's the son of David, and yet he's the root of David because David comes from him. He's the creator of David. He's the Lord of David. He's both fully God and fully human, the creator of David 
and also the offspring of David. An even clearer passage, perhaps, is found in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Always have been, always will be. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Here we go again. Only the Lord God can say that. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And that's important because if you talk to the Washtower and Track people who come to your door, they'll try to say that this isn't Jesus talking here. This is, this is God the Father. But look at who is the one who was dead and is now alive forevermore. He's the same one who said, I, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. This is Jesus Christ talking here. Which means that Jesus cannot be viewed as one of the manifestations of God, as one of the sons of God, as one of the, the, the avatars of God. He can't be regarded merely as an enlightened human being, though certainly he was that. But rather, when we think about Jesus, we're thinking about one who was definitely fully human. But also, he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings and the God of all gods, the creator, redeemer, and savior, and maker of all humanity. Amen. It's a teaching that we find throughout the Bible. It's not just found in a couple of verses. And so I'm going to give a small sampling. It's a little sampling of the verses that show that Jesus, that show the true status of, of Jesus. Three categories of teachings in the Bible that show us that Jesus is God on earth. First of all, you find throughout the New Testament that Jesus is explicitly referred to as God. This is Christmas time, and we always sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Well, it's found in Matthew chapter 1, where it says, They shall call him Emmanuel, because the word means God with us. When Jesus comes into the world, it is, he is God with us. Not something less than that. The presence of God Almighty in a unique way is found in the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, he starts off his gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And everything was created through him. That same Word, 14 verses later, in verse 14, is, is said to be the one who was incarnated, the one who was manifest in the flesh, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ isn't semi-God, quasi-God, sort of God, kind of God. He is God, and he has been so from the beginning. Which is why when Thomas... After Jesus is raised from the dead, Thomas hears about it, Thomas doubts it, and then Jesus shows up. And, Jesus, and, and then Thomas goes, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't go, okay, dude, you're getting a little carried away. I'm great, I'm risen from the dead, but you know, I'm just an angel, or I'm just a great guru, or ascended master, avatar. You know, pipe down a little bit. He doesn't do that. What Jesus does is he says, blessed are you, Thomas, for you have seen and believed. The confession of faith that Jesus himself acknowledges is the one that says, my Lord and my God. In fact, in the Greek, it's even a little more emphatic than this because it includes the singular. He says, the Lord of me and the God of me. There's not many lords and many gods. There's one, and Thomas is looking right at him when he sees Jesus raised from the dead, and Jesus doesn't stop him. Uh, in Romans 9, Paul refers to Jesus as God overall, blessed forever. It's really important that we remember that the folks who are writing this uh, are, are, are first century monotheistic Jews. That just means, monotheism means you believe in one God. The Jews were not polytheists, which means believing in a lot of gods. They believed in one God. In fact, the foundation of their faith was that God is God and human beings are human beings and the two don't mix. Which really raises the question is how did they ever become convinced that Jesus was in fact God in human form? 
But here Paul, a monotheistic first century Jew, refers to Jesus as God overall, blessed forever. And then in Titus 2.13, it refers to the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For Paul, Jesus is not just Savior, he's the great God and Savior. And by the way, a little footnote, uh, and, and I don't mind me mean at Jehovah Witnesses because I love Jehovah Witnesses, but uh, when you bring up this verse to them, they'll open up their green Bible, uh, the New World Translation, and they'll look at this verse and it says something quite different. Uh, subtly different, but with, with a major significance. Because they insert the word of the in that verse when it's not there. So they have the coming of our great God and of the Savior Jesus Christ. And they do that to drive a wedge because they don't, they don't think Jesus is God. So if a verse seems like it is saying Jesus is God, they have to find a way to it doesn't say that. So they insert some words there. And the people who are going door to door don't know that. And they're just sincere. But the folks who uh, translated this uh, make me irate. Uh, but let's move on. Okay, so, great God and Savior. Um, Jesus speaks like God. Okay, he's referred to as God, and then he speaks like God. Listen to this. One of my favorite verses. Philip, at one point, you may recall, says, Jesus, you know, you've been talking about God a lot, and why don't you just show us God? Show us the Father. And Jesus goes, Philip, have I been so long with you, and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see the Father. Why then are you asking, show us the Father? Now think about this. Think about the implications of this. See, it's massive. What would you think if, if, if somebody were to ask me, you know, at the end of a sermon, okay, Greg, you've been talking about God all this, you talk about God a lot. Why don't you just show us God? All right, show us, and then we'll be satisfied. And what would you think of me if I were to say, dude, dude, you've been coming to this church all this time, and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see God. Why then are you asking, you know, show us God? You'd think I was nuts. Uh, crazy. I mean, it's obvious I'm not God. Uh, but you would think I, yeah, I didn't take my medication this morning or, or something. I mean, that's, that's a loony, crazy thing to say. Now, if you put it in the first century Jewish context, it's even crazier because the foundation of their faith is that God is not a human being, and yet Jesus is saying this. He, the the only one who can say that is someone who is divine or crazy. Those are your options. Either this guy is totally off his rockers. I actually respect people who say, I think Jesus was a nut job. He's crazy. He's a loony tune, a megalomaniac, going around claiming to be God. That's consistent. I respect that. I think it's wrong, but that's very consistent. Or he's telling the truth, in which case, well, that has serious implications for our life. This in-between thing where he's a nice guy, kind of good, kind of sweet, uh, you know, Good moral teachings. See, this isn't the way a good teacher talks. This is, if he's a mere human being, this is either crazy or blasphemous or something. But it's not good. It's not good. It's, it, it's nuts. He says things like this. I've come that all should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Now, that's interesting. He's claiming he wants, he's demanding the same kind of honor that God the Father gets. It'd be like if I were to say, you know, you guys, I want some respect finally. Okay, so I want a little respect thrown here. Respect me the way you respect mm, God. Honor me the way you'd honor God. A little R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Is that asking too much? Come on. But see, that's crazy. You don't honor any human being the way you honor God. God's in a category by himself, and yet Jesus talks this way. He says things like, before Abraham was, I am. And it's not just using bad grammar here. He's referring back to Exodus 3, where the Lord identified himself, Yahweh, out of the burning bush to Moses. 
said, uh, uh, said, said, I am that I am. That's my name. So here Jesus is saying, hey, you guys, remember that story about the burning bush and God talking through the burning bush? Well, that was me. That was me. And they got the point because they picked up stones to stone him because the punishment for blasphemy claiming to be God was death. And so they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus got away. Jesus says this, uh, things like this in Matthew chapter 11. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Think about this. No one knows the Father except the Son and whoever the Son wants to reveal him. What would you think about me if I were to say, hey, you guys, I've got a revelation for you here. I don't mean to, you know, brag or anything, but n- no one knows God except for me. <laughs> no, no one does. No, no, no one ever has, really, except for me. And then I'll reveal him to whoever I choose. Did you see, did you hear how crazy that is? Nuts. Arrogant. Which is why it's consistent to say the guy is a nutcase. Or, in fact, what if he's telling the truth? What if he's God on earth? called Son of God. What if, in fact, this is the truth? And see, all those miracles he did and rising from the dead and all that kind of stuff, all that was meant to confirm that he is telling the truth, which means this isn't some great human being we're talking about here. This is the presence of God here on earth. He says things like, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. See, what the rabbis would always teach in the first century is things like, blessed are you if you're persecuted for the sake of Israel. Or if you're, if, you're, if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake or for Yahweh's sake. But nobody went around saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. Who do you think you are, God or something? Yeah. And then he, then he tells people, pray in my name. When you pray, from now on, when you pray, pray in my name. Again, hear the arrogance of that. What would you think of me if I said, okay, here you guys, from now on, I want you to pray in my name. Uh, you know, when you go home and pray for dinner, do it in Greg's name. In the name of Greg, we pray for this dinner. In the name of Greg, Lord, heal, uh, heal our dog. In the name of Greg, you know, in the name of Greg, we come against demons. Well, it's not going to have the same power. I can guarantee you that. And if I ever teach something like that, you should see, first, if I am off my medication, and if I keep on doing it, run out of here and never come back, because this is blasphemy. To be praying in the name and the authority of a mere human being, it's just, it's just not what's done, certainly not in first century Judaism. And yet this is what Jesus commands of his disciples, which is why he got crucified. And he comes down a little more subtly, but just as powerfully, he claims to be the bridegroom. And all the Jews know that, that, that the one who is the groom is Yahweh. Throughout the Bible, Yahweh presents himself as the, the groom who wants a bride. He's always trying to get Israel to be the bride. The bride refers to his people. He wants a marriage-like relationship with people. So when Jesus shows up and refers to himself as the groom coming for the bride, well, they know what he's claiming there. He's Yahweh who's, who, who wants a bride so badly he became a human being to reconcile people to himself. And he gets his bride on Calvary. And then he says things like, I've come down from heaven. That's weird. And he says things like, I had glory before the creation of the world in John 17. That's weird. All sorts of very weird stuff. Not normal stuff. Not okay stuff. Not guru stuff. Not enlightenment stuff. Not, not, not avatar stuff. This is either crazy stuff or it's true stuff. And if it's true stuff, we're talking about Yahweh himself, who loved us so much, he became a human being. So Jesus is referred to as God. Jesus speaks like God. And finally, Jesus is worshipped as God. In Matthew 28 this is huge. Matthew 28 and a number of other places, it says they came and they clasped his feet and they worshipped him. Jesus is worshipped. Now, 
As I mentioned earlier, the foundational belief of Judaism is that only God is to be worshipped. Only God's to be worshipped. Which is why when other human beings are worshipped mistakenly, the human beings, if they're Jewish and they know their Bible, they, they, they forbid it. So for example, we find in Acts 10, Cornelius is this pagan and he gets a dream that, that someone's going to teach him about God and then Peter shows up and, and Cornelius being a pagan, he thinks that Peter is God or something. So he begins to worship Peter. But Peter being a good Jew says, knock it off. No, I've come here to show you who to worship and it's not me. He's come to introduce him to Jesus Christ. Or Paul and Silas did the same thing. They did some miracles in this pagan area. And the pagans, they don't know any better, so they start worshiping Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas, they tell them, don't do that. Because no one is to be worshipped other than God. Even angels in the Bible freak out when people worship them. They don't want to be worshipped unless they're demonic. And so in the book of Revelations, twice, John, in his kind of apocalyptic, visionary mode, gets a little confused, disoriented. We can understand that. And, and he sees this incredible angel and thinks that it's God. And so he starts to worship this angel, and the angel says, Stop now, for I am a fellow worshiper like you. And then he points towards Jesus Christ. So people, good people forbid worship, good angels forbid worship, but Jesus, he, do, he doesn't only not stop it, he solicits it. All hail, he says, and people fall at his feet and worship. Because he is not just a great human being. He's not a high-ranking angel. He's the Lord God here on earth almighty. And the, the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is, I mean, if, if you don't believe, if, if you don't believe the, the testimony of the gospel authors, you've got to answer this question. What must Jesus have been like to have convinced them against their most fundamental cultural beliefs, religious beliefs, that he is, he, a contemporary of theirs, the brother of James, remember. This isn't a story told long, long ago and far, far away. The brother is still there among the tribe. And what must Jesus have been like to have convinced them that he was the presence of God on earth and that it was okay to worship him as God when their most fundamental Jewish convictions would have said that's impossible? If Jesus was as the, God, as the Gospels present him, doing miracles, rising from the dead, and making claims and things like that, well, then maybe we can understand how they got convinced. But if it was anything less than that or other than that, if you don't think that's how they got convinced, you tell me how they got convinced. Uh, and good luck on that one because it's not easy to do. Uh, the historical evidence, as well as the testimony of Scripture, leads us to one of two conclusions. Either he's crazy and nuts, and now you have to explain how come the disciples didn't think he was nuts because they had more reasons to think he was nuts than you did. Either he's crazy or nuts, or in fact, he's telling the truth. And he is the Lord of lords, King of kings, God of all gods. If he is that, three things follow. I close with this. Number one, it means God is this beautiful. If Jesus is the presence of God here on earth, it means God really is this beautiful. If he was just a great human being, he doesn't say anything about God. But if he's the presence of God himself, he says everything about God. This is what God looks like. This is what God looks like. God is this kind of love. Sometimes people ask this question. How could any intelligent person today continue to believe that God would become a human being? Back in the old days when they thought the earth was the center of everything, they didn't have any idea how big the universe was, we can understand how they would think they're important enough for God to become a human being. But we know that the universe is very, 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 very old and very, 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 very big. Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions, gazillions of stars and planets and whatever. We're, 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 we're just a little microscopic piece of dust 
in an insignificant solar system in a, in a remote corner of a little galaxy in a galaxy cluster among many galaxy clusters. So to think that God would become a human being, isn't that arrogant? Isn't that anthropocentric, human-centered? But see, here's the thing. What if God is, the universe in its size shows his greatness and his power. What if God is as loving as he is powerful? And see, with love, you don't show the, the intensity of love by how big something is. You show the intensity of love by how small you're willing to get for the sake of the beloved. And so when the God of the universe, the one who holds all the molecules in existence every second, becomes a little baby, in a remote part of the world, in a little manger, feeding trough, that's all about love. So on Christmas, and hopefully every day of our life, when we think about the little baby, Jesus, what you're seeing there is a, uh, a bundle of atomic love, his compressed love, a package of love, a love that is beyond our wildest dreams, beyond anything we can imagine. It's unfathomable love. It's incomprehensible love. It's unsurpassable, unimprovable love. It's eternal, unconditional, unwavering love. God would become a human being. The smallness shows the greatness. And then add to that that this baby grows up and dies on Calvary. And then add to that, he dies on Calvary even though and precisely because we didn't deserve it. And all of this just displays a God whose love is beyond anything we can possibly get our brains around. A lover of, of, of humans that defies all of our, our normal rational categories. You know, the belief that God, that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human, I grant it's a hard thing to believe. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. But God is just crazy enough to do it. He's crazy in love. And so when we look at Jesus Christ, we're seeing the face of God, the picture of God. This is what God looks like. It says a second thing. If Jesus is the Lord God Almighty here on earth, it says, tells us a second thing. It tells us that we were worth dying for, or at least God thought we were worth dying for. He says, you are worth this, becoming a little baby, dying on the cross. See, if Jesus was just an avatar or an ascended master or a guru or whatever, it doesn't tell us anything about our worth. But if he's our creator, the one who knows our worth, and now he becomes a little human being and dies on the cross, well, that says a whole lot about me. It means that my creator thinks I am worth the creator dying for. It means I have a price tag on me that, that couldn't be added to. I have unsurpassable worth, and so do you. When you come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was the Lord God Almighty, you talk about self-esteem. This, this, this shoots it through the roof. You are your creator, the one who knows you best, thinks that you are worth him dying for. It changes everything, the way you think about your life. And no longer do you have to live into the bondage of the old lies you inherited from the world and what dad said about you, or mom said about you, or boyfriend did to you, or whatever. That doesn't define you any longer. If Jesus is the Lord God, creator of all, then he defines you. And that changes everything. It changes how you live because you know that this is true of everybody else as well. Amen. Every person I look at, I know that Jesus died for them. And my main job and your main job if you're a Jesus follower is to agree with God that they are worth dying for and to reflect that agreement by how you think about them and speak about them and treat them. So if Jesus is the Lord God, not only does it change the way you view yourself, it changes the way you view everybody else and it sets a different trajectory of your life. You start living in a different way. You start living in love as Christ has loved you. And the third thing follows from it and that is this. If Jesus is the Lord God Almighty, then we only honor Jesus appropriately when we worship him as God. 
Worship means to ascribe worth. When you acknowledge who he is as God, now you're rightly related to him. Otherwise not. It's impossible to have a right relationship with a person if you misidentify the kind of being they are. If I go to Joe over here and, and, and I, for some mistaken reason, I think Joe is a dog. I'm not going to be rightly related to him because Joe is a full human being. And while dogs deserve some respect, I think we should honor all animals. I, that's part of our, our job description. But they don't have the same value as a human being. Sorry, dogs. And so if I'm treating Joe like a dog, it doesn't mean I'm being cruel to him, but I'm not giving him the respect that's due to a human being. I can't be rightly related to Joe if I'm treating him like a dog. Would you agree with that? Well, the gulf between Joe and a dog is minor compared to the gulf between human beings and God. And so if Jesus Christ is, in fact, God on earth, but we're still treating him like a mere human being, we're dishonoring him. It's insulting. And it doesn't matter how many compliments we give him. Oh yeah, he's a human being, but he's the best. He's the smartest. He's the most enlightened. He's, he's an avatar. He just really has got it going on. It doesn't matter. If I go to Joe and I say, you're a dog, but, you know, take consolation, you're the best dog I've ever seen. <laughs> it's still not a right relationship. I, there's a categorical confusion here. Folks, if Jesus Christ is, is, is God on earth, then we have to relate to him as God, which means this. We put our trust in him. That's called having faith. No longer do you try to save yourself on the basis of your good merits. You just trust your relationship with him. And, and if Jesus Christ is God, then that means we surrender our life to him as he requires of us. We surrender our life. That just means you stop living a self-centered life where you're always looking out for number one, you and your loved ones, and you start living a life that's centered on him. You surrender. You, you no longer control your own life. You surrender the reins of your life over to him. Turn from your self-centeredness. The Bible calls that repentance. It just means turning around, and you surrender it over to him. If Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Lord God, that it means that you make living for him the purpose of your life. It's no longer just going to be about getting things and getting by and being as happy as possible, but rather you find out his will in the Bible and you start to live out his will. If he's in fact the Lord God, it means that he, he becomes the model of our life. We pattern our life after him. And so if you're here this morning and, and you have some confusion about Jesus or you, know, you just didn't know what category to put him in, but the Holy Spirit is pulling on you and you, you see that your life isn't surrendered to him, I encourage you to do that now. There's nothing magical about it. You're just committing to start living a different way. Start hanging out with other Jesus followers and start, start you know, learning to worship with other Jesus followers and, and start to serve with other Jesus followers and live life with other Jesus followers and that's how you get enculturated in the kingdom. And like any new thing, it feels really weird at first. You start talking to Jesus. Well, you, you'll feel crazy at first. But you'll get used to it. Keep going with it. Uh, you'll find that, you know, in time, it becomes your new normal. So surrender your life to him. For others of us who are already Jesus followers, take this material, internalize it, and be willing to, and ready to share it when there are people that you come in contact with who could use uh, the, the perspective of Scripture on Jesus. I want to ask the Holy Spirit just to seal this message in our hearts, and as I do so, I'll ask the prayer team to come up. And if you're here this morning and have anything you want to pray about or talk about, feel free to come up here and Pray or talk with these folks. Holy Spirit, seal this message on our hearts. Any who have made a commitment that they're going to start walking in a different way and start viewing Jesus different, Holy Spirit, seal that on their hearts and pull them into the kingdom and into the community. Thank you, Lord God, for being the God of outrageous love who is willing to become a human being and die for us. It, it, well, we will never get our brains around that, and that's a good thing because it's too beautiful for us to ever fathom. We acknowledge you to be the beautiful Lord that you are. 
as we leave 2009 and enter 2010, Lord, we, we do it with a renewed commitment to live for you day in and day out and to be used by you to build your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And for one last time in 2009, all the people of God said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom. See you next year. Hi, everybody. I want to thank you for participating in the 2X campaign. Uh, thanks to all those who were able to give and for those who provided the matching funds. It's just a, a joy and an honor to work with you to build the kingdom. If you're listening to this and it's not yet December 29th, up until midnight December 28th, you still can give and be a part of this and everything you give will be doubled. Make sure you check on our website, Facebook, or The Bridge to see how this all turned out. God bless you guys. It's an honor to build the kingdom with you and have a great new year.